Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Terry, it's fantastic to have you along on our podcast today. It's great to meet you. And though people can't see, I can see that you're sitting somewhere. You've got some very uh, auspicious-looking jackets in the background of your office. Tell us a little bit about those. Oh, yes. All right. I, uh, I've been living in the States for 40 years and uh, did three basic things, uh, made a couple of Olympic teams, uh, was in the military, ran the U.S. disaster response operations for 11 years as a, as a major and as a lieutenant colonel, uh, ended up uh, serving, getting a two-year tour on the Army General Staff at the Pentagon. And uh, then after 9-11, they extended that tour to five years, which is a bit unusual. So ended up having a, a quite an interesting life. Uh, the uniform back there is, is my uh, military mess dress. Uh, which I, I have to say that my job in the Pentagon was Assistant Chief Congressional Liaison to work the uh, White House and Congress. So that uniform was, was worn at various uh, auspicious events at the White House and also in Capitol Hill. Excellent. Well, I look forward to learning a little bit more about that uh, as this conversation goes along. So, Terry, um, just to begin with, perhaps uh, let us know uh, your current professional responsibilities. Well, at the moment, I'm the treasurer of the Kupru RSL, yep. and it's a community club. <clears throat> it uh, uh, was formed back in the 30s. Uh, we built the existing building uh, 70 years ago. It's had a few modifications. Uh, at this stage, we're uh, uh, expanding the club, uh, which is a center of the community in Kupru. For example, on Anzac Day, typically we close the street down. Uh, this one, we did the same thing. And even with COVID, we ended up with close to 2,000 people. Fantastic. Uh, uh, it's, it's the centre of the community in Kupuru. Okay. And how long have you been the treasurer for? Uh, just on a year. Right. And but I think... Hold uh, on. Hold on. Let me go back. I was the acting assistant treasurer. Right. And then uh, about two months ago, they voted me in as the full treasurer. Okay. And uh, I think you were mentioning to me before we started recording, you hold another responsibility there as well. We put together uh, the board after the sale of the building. Uh, we decided we need to set a future trend. So we put a futures committee, uh, uh, Navy Commander uh, Alan Reagan is the chairman of that committee, and he's done a brilliant job. We're now looking very closely at how we expand that club to be a better community leader. And uh, it's interesting, most people who are not that familiar with RSLs would understand that, you know, they're for retired servicemen and women. But the fact that you, you know, you're, you're talking about it being, you know, a facility for the broader community. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, how that plays out. Well, as an RSL, we have about 212 members. But as a club, we have well over 2,000 members. Right. So the, the, they don't require to be retired or ex, uh, active military. Uh, that way, we can be a true community leader. 
we open up the, the club. So we are an RSL and a community club is the best combination I can say to you. Okay, great. And uh, give us a bit of an indication of uh, some of the, the metrics of the club. How many, uh, you said there's 2,000 members, how many staff? And uh, what uh, are some of the, uh, the facilities that you offer? Well, at, at the moment, we're in the throes of expanding that staff. And the facilities in the club are obviously pokies. We have a TAB. Uh, we put poker on of an afternoon, uh, Saturday afternoon, and we're actually holding uh, the regional poker tournament uh, okay. in a week or two. Uh, and as, as a club, we also host uh, Rotary, uh, American Legion, uh, the Australian American Association, and various military groups, uh, the Submariners users. Uh, so as such, uh, we open the club at, uh, up as a community club and to try and be a, a true club citizen or sorry, community citizen, we don't typically charge those uh, organizations, especially if they're not for profit, to use our club. So therefore, it is a focal point for those people to come enjoy the facilities. Our menu has a very high rating. Uh, I was noting that uh, on the Google searches, uh, as, a, uh, as a menu, as a restaurant, we rate well above the other clubs in the immediate vicinity. So therefore, we're very popular. Good quality food at the right price, and that helps the community. Excellent. And are you a, uh, a poker aficionado yourself? Oh, not anymore. I used to be in the old days, but I got uh, too busy. Uh, I must admit, in the military, I worked out very quickly that, unfortunately, in poker, uh, when you're paying, playing with your peers, there are winners and losers. Right. And uh, it's, it's not a good idea to be a, a consistent winner. And right. it's a very right. bad idea to be a consistent loser. So <laughs> I, did, uh, I did encourage uh, it, but I didn't join in as the commanding officer. In most Fair cases. enough. It's, uh, it's quite the science poker, isn't it? I have a friend of mine who is a... Uh, he has a PhD in physics and he's a math genius and uh, he has these poker nights and I think the it's $50 a head to play and uh, I go with the expectation I'm definitely losing my money and I'm just going to have a fun time. <laughs> so, so Terry, before we get back into talking a little bit more about the uh, Cooparoo RSL, I'd be very interested in learning more about your backstory because it sounds very fascinating. Where were you born? Sydney. You were born in Sydney, okay. Yes, I, I moved a company over to the United States uh, many years ago. And uh, interestingly enough, I didn't have a, a, a visa, a work visa, even though I ran a corporation over there. Uh, so I went to the immigration office and asked them how I got a visa. And they basically said to me, you have to do something no American can do. So about six weeks later, I went to the national championships and beat both Olympians. And uh, the military, of all places, uh, offered me uh, a, a means to process a visa. Uh, so I ended up joining the Army, uh, went through the, the various courses and so on, uh, applied for a green card in July, got it in January, received my citizenship in May, and represented the United States in a couple of Olympic teams uh, for the next 27 years. Fantastic. What was your, uh, your sport of choice? Olympic shooting. That's why the military supported me. Ah, fair enough. Um, and did you come with your, uh, from a military family? Were your um, parents involved with the military? Well, uh, my stepfather uh, went to, he and his brothers all went to New Guinea in 1942. 
that he and three of his brothers, uh, one got killed up in the Kokoda Trail. Uh, so that was the background. My uncle ended up getting a field commission uh, as an officer in the Australian Army. But uh, I had no incentive uh, to join the Australian Army, though I had great admiration for it. When the uh, U.S. made me an offer uh, to, you know, come in and uh, be a coach. In fact, I ended up uh, running the Olympic team as, for three and a half years as the national coach, and that was my military job. Right. And, uh, and so when you were um, in your formative years at university or high school, I should say, what did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, that's interesting. I, I always tell any uh, kids, you will probably have seven jobs before you're 30. Right. Now, remember, if you're at uni, you flip hamburgers. That's a job. Sure. Uh, I was a, when I was at Sydney University, I was a courier uh, on as much uh, spare time as I could to try and make a bit of money. I also worked uh, night shift in a hospital mm -hmm. uh, at Royal North Shore in Sydney uh, to pay the way. Uh, so uh, in my case, I, I didn't know, but I did start a company when I was 19. And it was actually successful. So I was quite surprised and did very well with it. I moved it to the States when I was in my late 20s. And what sort of business was that, Terry? Uh, construction. Okay. Uh, in a particular area? Uh, well, in Sydney, I was single and multifamily. In the United States, it was multifamily and small office buildings. And what uh, led you initially into the construction game? I found I could manage well. I was good with people and enjoyed people. And that's, that's the key thing uh, that we as a, a club are looking for, team leaders, people yep. that can actually motivate people. Right. Uh, and, uh, when we interview, we look, the most important thing of running a business is to get everyone uh, agreeing to a set of goals. Uh, in our case, uh, I used to say, get everyone on the bus together. Yep. And when everyone's on the bus together, uh, things happen amazingly. Uh, that's what we're doing down at Cooperoo. Uh, uh, back in the late 90s, uh, I decided to expand into data recovery, data forensics, mm -hmm. and, and built what became the second largest uh, data recovery, data forensic company in the United States before I sold it. In that case, it was... Uh, we had a tremendous team of engineers. Uh, we did stuff that was way over the leading edge. In fact, I used to call it over the bleeding edge because it was a team effort and, and everyone bought off on the goal. And I was part of a very amazing team that uh, my job was basically to hang on to them for grim death while they succeeded. Yep. And uh, uh, they took me to uh, be a very successful business. And, and, uh, uh, right. and, and so um, you're at university, you start a construction business. What inspired you to relocate to the U.S. in the first place? I, I'd, be, I'd taken a team over there and realized that there was a far bigger market. Uh, Sydney was, was you know, one of the biggest markets in Australia. But uh, I realized that leadership is leadership. And what I did is I hired a really good team around me. Uh, I actually initially went in as a general contractor, as they call it in the States. Then I hired three really good general contractors and a couple of good architects. And again, with a really good team around me, I just hung on and, and let them uh, make all of us successful. And part of the 
the effort was to make sure that everyone participated in the profits. Uh, that's one thing I learned, that uh, a piece of the action was always vested in the employees. Uh, they had a certain period of time in which they uh, could uh, reach that vesting. And then they were part owners of the business. Uh, all I had to do was work with them, listen to the advice they gave me, uh, make the decisions that were necessary, pay the bills, obviously, and and then share in the profits with them. Fantastic. And so you get over there, you need to demonstrate uh, you have a, a unique skill set, uh, which you did through your, um, uh, your competitive shooting. And so when you were asked to join the military, were you doing that in conjunction with running your business or did you need to wind that down in order to take those military responsibilities on? Well, I, I, I was very, very lucky in a way. They, they gave me a, a high degree of flexibility. In the, in the, initially in the military, uh, I did all of the armed forces tests. And when I finished, they said, wow, you could do any uh, military occupational specialty of the U.S. office. It was called an MOS. Uh -huh. uh, so I said, well, you know, uh, I'd like to be trained as a, a medic. So I ended up going through Fort Sam Houston and graduated as a combat medic as an enlisted. Uh, after that, uh, I guess I excelled with the division and they sent me to office a candidate school at uh, Fort Benning where I graduated. Now, in actual fact, they put me through all the engineer schools after that. So uh, I'm a combat medic uh, as a secondary school, but now as an officer, I was an engineer. That's why I ended up uh, running the U.S. disaster response operations where we had to rebuild major cities that were damaged severely by hurricanes or earthquakes. For example, the first major project I got was uh, San Francisco earthquake. Uh -huh. uh, so I was put in the middle of that, uh, activated a, a lot of engineer offices, and uh, we spent a billion and a half dollars in the first week, uh, basically making the, the place livable uh, or passable, and uh, then we moved forward. Uh, subsequently, I did a, a well, virtually every major disaster after that. I had to do the rebuild of Kuwait City in 92, uh, and then the hurricanes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a major hurricane, uh, Category 5, go across the, the bottom of Florida, and uh, I, I took a helicopter up afterwards, and it looked like someone had let off about four or five low-yield nuclear, nuclear weapons in a, in a row. Right. Absolutely eliminated. Luckily, it didn't hit Miami, mm -hmm. but it, uh, the edge of it did. Uh, but the, the bottom end, Homestead, uh, and all the way across Florida was absolutely devastated. And that was a real eye-opener. So putting the teams together, we had to clean up the place so you could actually pass on the streets, get the electricity on, get the water working, get the sewer system. It was all gone. Uh, and that was our job over the first two or three weeks. And we spent about $3 billion in three weeks down there. Uh, got the place passable and then handed it over to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management. So our job was to get in, do the initial responses, get the place so that it was passable, and then allow the Federal Emergency Management to come in and rectify. And Terry, um... Uh, obviously, I'm a bit ignorant about these things, but it seems to me that as an Australian, that's quite, you know, it would be fairly rare 
um, to be brought into the American military and and uh, reach that level of seniority. Are there many Australians who do that, or was that quite a unique thing that you did? Well, I noticed, actually, I came across a, a number of Australians. There was another officer in my division that uh, was Australian. But the, 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 actually, it was a big advantage. To get promoted from captain to major, they put me on the general staff of the Corps of Engineers. Well, there are no captains up there. So for the first couple of days, uh, people looked through me because they knew I couldn't be there. I was a captain. Right. And then uh, after a while, uh, I actually got the night shift running the operation center for a, a major operation. And at the end of that, I went and saw the general and, and I explained to him that uh, my background. The other thing, too, is my uniform. Uh, I have the three distinguished medals, they're called, uh, for marksmanship. And I've got to tell you, when I left the U.S. Army, I was the last person to have all three of those medals. So to go into a briefing, uh, which they regularly did, I ended up doing a lot of briefings at Congress to get budgets, to have an Australian accent immediately got the attention of those listening, rather than sit there and play with their, their doodle on the pad or play with their right. phone. They took yeah. to sit up. And then the uniform with the, uh, the marksmanship medals was a real eye-opener. So the, usually for the first three or four minutes, the, the, the briefing ended up as questioning me, where, hey, where are you from? And my immediate comment was, I'm from the Deep South. And that always generated a, a, a what? Right. <laughs> or something like that. And then I'd say, yes, I'm from the Deep South. I'm from Australia. And uh, it, it, it's amazing the attitude in the United States to Australia. It's, it's very... The marketing campaigns that went on uh, in the 80s uh, mm -hmm. with Paul Hogan really did help Australia enormously. So uh, I guess uh, I was looked on very favorably in, in those briefings, et cetera, et cetera, and, and was quite impressed. And just to come back for a moment, uh, so whilst you were in um, the armed forces, your business was still running or did you wind it up? No, no. Uh, I was I was activated in for disasters and deactivated. Right. So I I would run my business when I was on the Army General Staff at the Pentagon. I'd typically spend a day or two a week up in Washington, and my team would run the business. So, uh, so it sounds like between business and your armed forces career and your sporting achievements, you must have been a very busy man. That was fun. Yeah, as I keep on telling people, I did three things. Uh, I, I built, actually, the last four companies I built were tech companies. Uh, and, of course, uh, I remained competitive. Finally, in, in 2002, I realized my world ranking had dropped to 17, which to me was, was disastrous. I, I continually won national championships. I won 17 national titles over 27 years. And so I decided to retire. And then when I did, I suddenly had all that spare time even though I was on the Army General Staff at the Pentagon at the time, and uh, then continued building businesses and had to retire the military in the end. Uh, and that gave me more time to focus on community and charity events. I, I've, I founded a couple of really big charities over in the United States. Uh, that's why when the RSL asked me to sit on the board, I, I did it immediately out of respect for Australia. And my stepfather and, and his brothers and my I guess my step uncle who was killed up in uh, New Guinea. And what uh, space did your um, not-for-profits work in? Uh, okay um, primarily education. Uh, there was one that uh, I put around a, a high school 
that was failing. Uh, it ended up at a stage where, well, bad teachers is the best example I can give you. Uh, the school was down to about 350 uh, students. It was a, uh, what they call a, a junior high school. Uh, up to eighth grade, I think you'd call it here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I stepped into that uh, in the mid 80s. And that was my first foray into a nonprofit. We raised $3 million for it. But also I brought in uh, a, uh, a headmistress, uh, paid her a salary that was about 20% above what she expected, uh, which was a no brainer. And I told her, not a problem, but through your efforts, you need to raise four times your salary every year. And I'll, I'll give you the vehicle to do that. We had dinners and events and she'd do presentations. Mm -hmm. And she exceeded four times her salary every year, which means we paid her uh, additional bonuses, which were allowed to under the foundation system. And uh, when I left, that school had gone from 350 to 720 kids. And the last time I heard it was the largest junior high school in the state of Texas. Right. So it went from a point where they were going to pull the plug on it because they couldn't afford to keep it running to, in, uh, interestingly enough, just before I left, we were turning away 400 kids. So I built another six classrooms uh, from donors and put plaques on the walls and so on and had them fully, fully paid for before they were finished. So they're the sort of things that I enjoy doing. I had 22 kids at the local university uh, under a scholarship program in uh, North Texas. Uh, mm -hmm. And that worked very, very well. Obviously, I wanted them to be in a marksmanship arrangement and preferably a ROTC, which is, you would call it the cadet corps, mm -hmm. but they call it reserve officer training corps at the university. Mm -hmm. And that was very successful because we had highly motivated kids that would come in from other states. Uh, they'd take the scholarship and uh, they would then... Uh, graduate from the university and a lot of them went on to be engineers like myself uh, and uh, did very well for themselves in the United States. Fantastic and so uh, what was it that led to you returning to Australia? Oh look I'd been coming and going to Australia a bit over the years so I hadn't ignored it uh, but when my mother died back in uh, 2002 there wasn't a great incentive to come back but I also always missed Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, I love Australia as a country and I love the people. I, I, and I started looking up my old schoolmates and then finally decided to call it quits and come home. Uh, went, to, went back to Sydney, just uh, didn't enjoy it as much. It's now kind of, well, uh, very overpopulated, I thought. But my family, my family grew up in Queensland. My, my mother grew up just near where I live here. Her father was premier of Queensland for six years, went on to federal politics where he was deputy prime minister and treasurer of Australia. Uh, so, you know, my family background is Queensland and Australia. My mother always said to me, you will come home, dear, won't you? This is your home. <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, mum, I will always come home. So I did. And so when was that? Uh, a year, just a bit over a year ago, year and oh. a quarter ago. Oh, so very recently then. Yes, yes. And the right. first thing I did was go and join the uh, Cooper RSL because it was the best rated RSL club in, in, uh, in the area. And were your businesses still running in the US up until you returned? 
No, I'd sold them. Uh, at the moment, I've got a number of uh, patents in uh, intellectual property, and I have a team in Sydney that are now implementing those patents with another team I have been using over many years overseas. So the two teams are combining uh, to develop this technology portal, I call it, with multiple platforms. Okay, fantastic. And and so moving now to have a bit more of a conversation about Cooper RSL, uh, you joined as a member, I imagine, because it was the local RSL. What uh, what inspired you to um, uh, take a more active role? Great people and very very good leadership. Uh, I I met with the uh, the president, Bev uh, Collenberg, uh, a real gentleman and uh, obviously a very effective leader. Uh, the committee, uh, I I met them socially. I turned up at the annual general meeting, uh, would have been about 11 months ago, and got put. And they elected me to the board. Uh, and then uh, the treasurer that had been elected, uh, uh, well, he sold his business and, and ended up not turning up. So I, I was acting treasurer for about nine or 10 months, and then I got officially voted in as treasurer at the last annual general meeting. But as, as a club, it is the community leader. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just the way the community has respected that RSL. The other thing, too, is we've opened it up very much to non-RSL, non-service. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say at any given moment, the majority of the people at that club are, are not necessarily RSL members. And uh, when you're talking about the future of the club, you, which is something that you're obviously quite passionate about. What, what are the things that you're excited about in terms of uh, the future prospects? Well, the one thing that I've been very, very fortunate about in my businesses is to see the future. And I use that word loosely. Mm -hmm. In other words, anticipate the future. Mm -hmm. The technology company I put together in the late 90s, uh, I could see what was happening with technology and systems. And therefore, uh, I put together a structure to be a data recovery, data forensic business at the point where that became extremely desirable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I didn't necessarily build a business, but it came to me, uh, developed the technology base and it took me just under seven years to go from nothing to number two in the country. With the RSL, I see the future there for that club and so does our futures committee and the plan is to grow that club in 2025 to be the community leader and the and the top the best rsl club in the region and we will do that with the plans we've got in place now and so how would you measure that what would be some of the uh the key indicators that would let you know that you've achieved those goals i would say well, the, the goal, the uh, interim goal at the moment is to make sure that every day in December up to the Christmas holidays, the club has events on. Mm -hmm. That would be a great goal to achieve. And that gives us at the moment in our futures committee about six to seven months to achieve that. And I think we're going to do it. Uh, where businesses will use the club to have their Christmas parties uh, and their functions. Uh, we will cater those events because we've got a really good kitchen there. Uh, and the uh, aura of success 
within an organization is very important to us. And so uh, initial, initial metric is, is this year. Uh, the 2025 metric is to make sure that when someone says we're going to have an event, it's going to be at the RSL and Community Club in Cooperu. Fantastic. And uh, given your uh, history of living in Texas, have you been able to get the kitchen to, uh, to make a good barbecue? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love cooking. In fact, I do probably 90% of the cooking in my house. Uh, my partner doesn't really complain about that. Uh, right. She's very, very happy about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but I, I tell you what, interestingly enough, being a typical Australian, I eat more curries than I do barbecue. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I also, have... I, I built, built companies in Texas, New Mexico, Florida, and Washington, D.C. So I did have a pretty good span of the Deep South. Oh, fantastic. And so uh, uh, what's the curry situation like in the in the South? Are they... Are they good for making a mean curry? Uh, in, in the United States, it's very hard to find a good Indian restaurant, I'm sorry yeah. to say. Nowadays, it's a bit easier. But the reason I was always, I love cooking Indian food is because I couldn't find a good Indian restaurant. Fair enough. Uh, now, now when, I, when I moved to Florida, uh, it was very interesting. I found uh, because a lot of the people from the Northeast, uh, Boston, New York, uh, New Jersey moved to Florida, they tend to have a, a very good tolerance for excellent curries. Right. Uh, so uh, I was okay down there. There were great, a great number of really good Indian restaurants. Oh, you're a man after my own heart. I, uh, I have a slow, what they call low and slow barbecue, and I like to do my briskets and so on, but um, I, I cook a lot more curries than I do that. And so, Terry, I'm just interested, you know, what do you think it is about you that has given you this capacity to have this future predictability that perhaps others don't? Look, it's, it's interestingly enough, the, the team I work with at the RSL all have the same vision. Uh, we've got a three-man futures committee there. Uh, and uh, when I, I told them what I, I thought and threw it out on the table, I was quite surprised that we had three people thinking the same thing. Look, one thing I looked, worked out a long time ago, one person is an individual with, with goals and objectives. Two people working together brings in what I call the power group concept. Uh, and so a team working together is much more powerful than, uh, than three individuals. So the, the futures thinking that we've put together is a team effort. It's not just me. Uh, I just uh, throw stuff on the table. And now I've found that I've got... Uh, like minds who can see the future for that RSL and the community club. And we're now moving towards it where we've got to, we're extremely solvent. Uh, we are in a position that we can move forward in strength and uh, achieve our goals and objectives. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting also this uh, kind of melding of leadership within a military uh, environment and leadership within a business environment. Do you, see the skills as being different in any way or are they very similar? I found, uh, I did a, a lot of courses uh, uh, to, to get to be a colonel. I had to go through the various courses. I ended up with a master's in military science out of uh, uh, Fort Leavenworth. Uh, and I also started doing an MBA, which I didn't finish down in uh, New Orleans. 
And I was quite surprised. The MBA program taught me the concepts of leadership and, and accounting and so on. But also the military pretty well followed the same system. Uh, and the, the combination of two. Also, I found that in a lot of businesses, uh, originally I went into a, a major bank to do a presentation to get some financing I needed uh, to be able to handle my receivables. The company was growing so fast. And uh, I ended up uh, doing a quick presentation to the loan committee and the chairman. All he wanted to talk about was the military. He was a retired Air Force colonel. Uh, and the respect that went backwards and forwards. And his comment to me was, as an officer and a gentleman, we understand that your, uh, the way you will do business is based on those facts. And he was right. I mean, you treat people with respect, you uh, tell the truth, and you honor the truth, and you stay within ethical and moral guidelines in what you do business. And I found that the military and the business community follow those guidelines. Yes, you get bad eggs on both sides. And you get uh, people who uh, commit fraud, et cetera, et cetera. But they, by doing so, they dishonor and disrespect the people around them. And respect is what it's all about. Uh, with uh, our, uh, our board at the RSL, we treat each other with absolute respect. And that's a very important part of uh, being a community leader is, is respect. Uh, with those sentiments more. How much of, uh, I mean, there's obviously many RSL clubs, both in Queensland and across Australia. How much sharing of ideas and philosophies and strategies and so on happens between the clubs or are you largely running your own race? Oh, no, no, we work together. Uh, I was at the annual general meeting for the uh, uh, SED, South East Division, a couple of months ago. And uh, they, they've brought in consultants to uh, review what the, and I think there's about 105 clubs in that Southeast division. Yep. Uh, so it's a big organization. Well, from that meeting, I brought in the auditor that had handled the audits for uh, SED plus uh, a number of, of the RSLs. That auditor has really helped us because we, you know, we try and share stuff. And he'll say, why don't you contact uh, such and such an RSL club? They're having the same problem you had in this area. So I'll uh -huh. call up. Yes, this is the solution. So we tend to, to be an individual organization, but we're part of a, a major team. Uh, also, one thing that's happening, and I hope it goes through, is to allow uh, the constitution has to be changed for Queensland, but that will allow the son of return soldier or return servicemen, they can be Army, Navy, or Air Force, to also be an RSL member. And the wife can be an RSL member. Now, if that goes through, that'll expand uh, the RSL in, in Queensland rather dramatically. Um, and it will also pay respect to the sons and the daughters and the wives of the servicemen. Because let's face it, they had to put up with that service member being absent in war or whatever. So they should be members. And uh, I expect that will go through, at least I hope it will go through the constitutional change in December. That will allow our organization or our club, the Cooper RSL, to expand dramatically next year. So you can see that the future is already being 
painted for us. All we have to do is be ready uh, when that change happens to expand our organization. And also, I imagine with a lot more female participation in the armed forces now, how, how's that changing your membership? Uh, not um, the wives, but the actual female um, people who have served. Well, we're in the throes of uh, a search committee to expand our, uh, our subcommittees and our board. And one of the failures we have, and I, I found that immediately, was we don't have as much female participation as we should. And let's face it, that's a very important part of our organization. So we're in the throes of expanding that too, so that we can meet those requirements. And again, if that constitutional change happens in December, the, the wives, the sons and the daughters can become RSL members. Uh, so we want to open our club to the uh, youth, uh, game rooms for the kids, uh, so that the parents or the grandparents can bring the kids down there, put them in a game room where they can have fun, and they will keep on saying, hey, dad, or hey, granddad, please, can we go back to the community club again? And that will expand our ability to bring in and further support the community. And that's one of the things that we haven't been doing, but a number of the other RSLs are doing that. And therefore, we've seen that. We see that's the future. And that's where, where we want to head because it's the aura of RSL, are, you know, old retired people. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of other things that we can give people to. And especially in, in a community like we have, it's not open just to the military. It's also open to the community. You're obviously somebody who likes having, you know, lots of challenges and fingers in lots of pies. What, what sort of other things are you up to other than your involvement with the RSL now? You mentioned you've got uh, these uh, intellectual patents, but uh, what, else, what else keeps you busy? Well, the RSL is, is, uh, is my love at the moment, I have right. to say. Okay. And I put as much time into, into working with that club uh, and uh, the RSL down there to to be successful. Uh, I also work with my technicians, my, my developers, programmers, yep. and uh, we're expecting to have our uh, technology available to move over to the US probably in July, August timeframe. Okay. So that's, and also uh, I'm very active in the Rolls-Royce Club uh, right. as a member, and that's, that's the other joy I have. Uh-huh. Yes, you were talking to me before we started the recording about uh, recently uh, driving to Melbourne for a competition. Yes. And uh, I imagine that must be a very uh, interesting bunch of people that get involved in that. Well, you know, the funny thing is I was talking to the uh, president of the company doing our, our uh, technology development in Sydney, and he's a typical Sydney sider. I've known him for 40 years. And I said, oh, I'm going down to Melbourne next week. And he said, Why? <laughs> and uh, then I said, "Well, actually, uh, I'm I'm driving to Melbourne." Then he said, "Oh, why?" And I said, "I'm taking my Bentley down there." And he said, "Oh, oh, I can see now." <laughs> right. Well, if you're going to drive from Brisbane to Melbourne, I can't imagine there's a much nicer car to drive in than a Bentley. Well, it, it gave me a chance to go through the outback and through the Pilliga. I, right. I had. Uh, I went to boarding school in the Southern Highlands. And so over 50% of my classmates were from the outback. Uh -huh. uh, so I got a chance to go through some, some old towns that 
I'd driven to when I was a, was young and the, all dirt roads, obviously. Yeah. And now it's actually blacktop through there. <laughs> right. And did you did you catch up with any of your old school buddies? Oh, I did. Uh, only a couple, but I, I do see them regularly. I have dinners over at my house uh, where the last time we had 12 over here. So there's a, there's a few of them around. Oh, good on you. And uh, is there any uh, parts of living in the U.S. that you miss now? You know, I have to say, Australia, um, now that I'm back, I really don't miss the United States. I, uh, you know, I enjoy getting, I enjoy getting back there once the, the borders are open, uh, but only for business. And yeah. I'll basically run everything from this side. And what I'll do is I'll put a management team together over there. Uh, and that management team will, will run the operation and, uh, you know, send me reports. That's basically the way I've always done it. Uh, but I'm def definitely staying here in Australia. I love Australia, always have. Fantastic. Uh, it's interesting. I was born in Canada. Uh, I've lived in Australia since I was four. But um, I think it, it goes both ways. Australians have a, uh, a view of the US, which is largely media driven. And so it would be easy to think that, you know, America is just absolutely in chaos. And, uh, and certainly from the American side, talking to a lot of Americans about their understanding of Australia, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not all crocodile dundee and throwing shrimps on the barbie. But um, uh, I look at, you've obviously had a fascinating life, Terry, and I think we could talk for hours about uh, your experiences, but I'm very uh, respectful of your time. Before we wrap it up today, is there anything else you'd like to add about the RSL or uh, uh, any points you'd like to make? Just that uh, we're assembling an extremely good team down there. <clears throat> that team will be empowered to uh, meet the goals and objectives that we will agree on. And we have the initial goals and objectives in place. And uh, I would, you know, if I was a lot younger, I would want to be part of that team on the operational side. Nowadays, <clears throat> I don't mind sitting on the management team to enjoy seeing the team we're putting together succeed and excel in the club arena here. Well, that's excellent, Terry. Uh, I believe that the RSL must feel very grateful to, uh, to have you as part of their committee, to have somebody of such experience and, uh, and both strategic and operational uh, uh, capability. Thanks very much uh, for your time today. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.